reflecting um, over these past uh, few months, and certainly this past week, I was reminded of a quote. Edmund Burke was writing a letter to Thomas Mercer, and there is a lengthy passage in this letter that leads to this statement, but in the letter he said this, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I would change that just a little bit and modify or paraphrase if you would and I hope Mr. Burke will not be offended that I have done so but it is simply this the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for Christians and the church to do nothing and I believe that we as Christians and the church have been too quiet too silent too passive for too long. As a result, America has lost its moral compass. And I'm not just referring to these recent events. I wish that it was limited to that. But I look back and think about all the way back in history, and it's been some time when the Supreme Court ruled that it was unlawful to have prayer and Bible study in school. And I think if we begin at that point in history and we begin to move forward in the history of this nation, that every event of non-Christians, non-believers, that from that point has moved us to where we are today. And we as Christians and as a church have sat by quietly and allowed those things to happen. They have driven us further and further away from the Christian principles on which our nation was founded. And we have sit quietly and watched those principles fade away. It is time for us as a church and as believers to take a stand. It is time for us to attempt to turn the course, to change the direction. And in order for that to happen, we need a bold witness from every believer if we are to make a difference. We need people who will stand firm, stand up, and be heard for their convictions and their beliefs. It will not be easy. It will not be comfortable. It will not happen overnight. But I believe it is necessary. I'm reminded of a point in history, and there was a Christian politician. His name was William William Wilberforce. You may have heard of him. You may have heard of, of the effects of his life. But he was in England. And he took a stand against England's slave trade in the late 1700s. And there was a small group of believers, along with William, 
who, who took this stand. And they began to do everything that they could in Parliament as Christian politicians to make a difference. They began to pray. They prayed often for three hours a day, seeking God's guidance, God's direction, and the turning of the tide against the slave trade. Uh, They recruited churches. They recruited citizen groups. They produced anti-slavery material and distributed. They mobilized people to try to make a difference in this one thing. They wrote laws and submitted them to be approved and time and time again they were declined and they were rejected until eventually they won a victory. Now that's wonderful. It's encouraging to hear that those kind of things happened and can happen again. But here's the thing that's important for us to note about. And that is that it took them, from the moment they took their initial stand, repetitive work over and over and over again, it took them 20 years to win the victory. They didn't give up. They didn't shrink back. They didn't grow weary or tired. They they didn't throw in the towel. They continued to work effectively over And over and over again, submitting multiple years in a row laws to be approved, and yet they were not for 20 years. Until finally their prayers and their efforts and their commitment and their faithfulness to the task was rewarded with the passing of laws prohibiting the slave trade. So the question is, are we prepared for the journey? Are we prepared to try and right the wrongs and to turn the direction and to help this nation find its moral compass once again? To do what is necessary, it begins with a bold witness. It begins with taking a stand on the truths of God's Word and not compromising or not wavering in the face of rejection, in the face of ridicule, the world that is around us. When I was a young man, I heard an evangelist in a message ask a question. And I've heard it many times since. But I remember the first time I heard it and the impact that it had on my life as a youngster. The question he asked was this. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Is there enough in your life, in the way that you live it day by day, in the stands that you take, the actions of your life, is there enough to convict you of being a Christian in the world today? Because I want to share with you, as I look into Acts the 24th chapter, and I look at Paul's life and the events that unfold here, just coming to church on Sunday morning, just showing up for Bible study on Sunday night or or Wednesday night, those things alone would not convict us of being Christians. It's what goes beyond what happens in these four walls. It's what goes beyond what takes place here. 
that truly demonstrates to the world and communicates that we are His children. And He is our Father. And we live for Him day by day, moment by moment in our lives. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. And then he was transferred to the coastal city of Caesarea. He was imprisoned in Herod's Praetorium Guard. And he was kept in prison for at least, we we believe at least, for two years. While he was in prison, he faced trials before Felix, before Festus, before Agrippa, and others. I want us to look this morning at Paul's experience of being arrested for being a Christian. And see what we can learn from his life. And see if he was convicted and what that would mean to us in our lives today. And so in Acts the 24th chapter, I'd like to begin reading if you look back in verse 5. I want you to notice the charges. Uh, It says this. For we have found this man a real pest. And a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Those were the accusations. The accusations were this. This is a guy who lives out his faith in his life every day. And because he's living out his faith in his life every day, he is causing dissension. He is stirring up the Jewish people throughout all the world. He is identified as what? A ringleader. (laughs) That's an interesting term. A ringleader among those of the sect of the Nazarene. In other words, those who are believers in Jesus. That's what he was accused of. There was no high crime. There was no heinous act. It was simply the fact that as he lived his life every day, the way that he lived it, the words that he said, and the things that he did, and the passion in his heart, and the commitment to his king and his lord and his master, stirred up problems. It stirred up people. It caused them to get excited about the Lord and about Christ and about the sacrifice that he had made. He became known as a ringleader of those people. And that's what they were accusing him of. That's what they had arrested him for. And so Paul showed courage under pressure and was a bold witness, even in the face of the dangers that lie before him. And so there are three things that I want us to see from the text today to help us to understand Paul and the bold witness that he was to change the world in which he lived, even when he had been arrested and imprisoned. Pick up with me, if you would, in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. So he's on trial. He's being questioned. Uh, Witnesses are saying things against him. And now he gets the nod. It's your turn to say something. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge... To this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you have, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
And neither in the temple nor in the synagogue nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. said, I, I haven't done the things that they're accusing me of, right? Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. Interesting. Listen to what he says. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present an offering, in which they found me uh, occupied in the temple, having crowd of uh, or uproar, ha- without any crowd or uproar, but there were certain Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you, and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. So he was on trial for his faith. Three things that I want us to know. The first is this. He was unashamed of his service for God. Verse 14, the beginning part of that verse, says that Paul was unashamed. He said, listen, here's the truth. I serve God. He didn't deny that. He wasn't ashamed of that. He wasn't embarrassed by that. He didn't shrink back from it. He didn't know what that would bring, but, but he knew that he could not not identify as a servant of God. And so he identified that he was a believer. He identified that he was serving God, and he was not ashamed of that. It was a sect. Notice the terminology that he uses there. It was a group of people that were misunderstood, that were mistreated, that were exiled or excommunicated, they were not accepted in any way, yet he was not ashamed to identify as being a servant of God. Let me ask you a question. What do you do outside of the walls of this building that identify to others that you come in contact with that you are a servant of God? What do you do when you leave here that communicates to those you come in contact with that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that He is your Savior, and you serve Him unashamedly with your life? You see, Paul was not ashamed to admit that he was a servant of God. The things that he did and the way that he lived his life had brought him to this point to be arrested and to be on trial. And he would not deny or be ashamed of the fact that he was a servant of God. Too often, 
I think we associate being a follower of Christ with coming to church. Here's what I would tell you. Sitting in these seats does not make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage would make you a car. It just doesn't. Just because you show up and sit here doesn't say you're a Christian. It's an indicator. It's a certain point. But it's not the whole ball of wax. It's what we do when we leave here. And how we communicate to people in the world that says to them, I follow Jesus and I serve Him and I am not ashamed of that. And so if we're going to help change our world, our nation, if we're going to help turn the tide back toward the moral compass that we once had, we cannot be ashamed to be servants of God we cannot be embarrassed to say to people that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that He's our Savior. And we gladly serve Him. In fact, we should desire for people to know that. Everyone that we come in contact with, to know that about our lives. Second thing is this. He was uncompromising of His trust in God's Word. If you looked at the latter part of that verse 14, he talks about the law and the prophets. He knew the Word was the guidebook for life. And so he studied and applied it to his life. We must be students of the Word, and not just so that we can spout our knowledge or show people how much we know, but that God's Word can change our hearts that it can change our lives, that it can impact and motivate us to be different than we were yesterday or last week or last month or last year or ten years ago. That God's Word changes who we are. And not just one time changes and I repent of my sins and I confess Christ and I'm baptized and I receive His forgiveness and it's changed me, but it changes me every day. It changes me every moment that as I study His Word and I read His Word and as the Scripture says, as I take it and I hide it in my heart and I make it a real part of my life, that I live by it and it changes me and it gives me direction and it gives me hope and it gives me assurance and it gives me something to live by and something to live for. And God's Word must become a real part of our life. And Paul stood on the truths of God's Word. And he was uncompromising in those truths. He would not shrink back from it. He would not not be ashamed or embarrassed by it. But he stood on those truths and the principles that God's Word teaches. We can't stand on them if we don't know them. We need to be students of God's Word. But students who take that Word and apply it to our lives and let it change us each and every day. Third thing this morning is this is he was unwavering in his hope of the resurrection. He was unwavering in verse 15. Unwavering of his hope of the resurrection. He was a believer. And he believed in the truth. And the truth was that there was a resurrection and that there will be a resurrection. He believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ And he believed that that meant that there would be a resurrection for his life and all people. The scripture says it, it is very clear that there will come a day 
that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there shall come a day of reckoning that there will be a day of judgment that God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Paul believed in the resurrection. Paul believed in heaven and hell. He believed that there was a day of judgment that was coming and he stood firm in the integrity of his relationship with the Lord and his relationship with others. And he knew that his relationship with the Lord should make a difference in his relationship with others and that it should help make a a difference in their relationship with the Lord. Here's what we know from Paul. Paul believed so firmly in the truths of God's Word and the power of the resurrection that he was not ashamed to be arrested and placed in prison for his beliefs. He was not ashamed when called to testify in court to stand on the truths of God's Word to boldly proclaim that he was a servant of the Lord. He was not embarrassed or ashamed. He did not step back from that but he moved forward boldly with a witness and a testimony to say to the world, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Master. We understand that the efforts of Christians and church are not a a grand march down Main Street. It's not a standing on a stage before millions of people. If we're going to change the tide, if we're going to move the moral compass back to where God intends it to be, it will require a bold witness of one believer at a time, contacting and working with one unbeliever at a time, making disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples until ultimately the world and our nation are changed because there are believers all across the world who will stand firmly for the truths of God's Word. Not a social gospel. Not a convenient gospel. Not a trying to drag God into our world, but trying to bring our world into the presence of God. We need a bold witness. We need to take a stand as we never have before. If we hope for there to be a changing the moral compass of God's Word, of our world, according to God that we would help one person at a time to come to understand the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that we've received that they might receive it as well. This morning we're going to sing an invitation hymn. And when we sing an invitation hymn is, is a time for us to invite you to make decisions about your life about your relationship with the Lord, about your relationship with others. Asking yourself the question, if I was arrested for being a Christian, is there enough evidence in my life that I would be convicted? If there's not, maybe I need to make some changes. If there is, praise the Lord. Is there more that I can do to help others come to know the grace and mercy and forgiveness that I know? If there's a decision in your heart today, won't you come as we stand and we sing?